Let's open up our Bibles then. Isaiah 66. It's page 1091 in the Brown Bibles. I'm going to read just two verses. If you've been around recently, we've been working through a, a, a series in 1 Chronicles 29 on David's call for the people to, to get involved with the building of the temple. And it's had powerful resonances um, with what it means to, to commit yourself to enabling and furthering the mission of Christ in the earth. Jesus is building his universal worldwide temple in his church. That's what he calls it. He says, his church is my temple. It's my body, but it's also my temple. And so I wanted to draw these parallels between what David was doing back in the 900s BC and what we're doing now, planting a new church as part of God's greater mission in the world. And I thought rather than just leave that hanging there last week at the end of that chapter, I wanted to just bring you to these verses in Isaiah 66. I've um, found that these verses have been a real source of help and encouragement to me over um, the time in the run-up to us planting and beginning with the team that we started with, beginning this new church. And uh, I kept coming back to them. I kept praying these verses. And uh, I'll tell you why in a minute. But I, I remember hearing John Piper say that on the reading of books, he said it's not it's not books that change your life, it's, it's sentences. So you can read a 300-page book, and sometimes just one sentence will, will stick with you, which is a comfort for those of us who f- fail to remember anything else we've read. But it's not just that. It's the fact that sometimes just an idea can be planted in your heart like a seed and bring about change. And sometimes verses in the Bible are like that that we, we want to read the grand scope and the fast narrative and understand the big picture of what God's doing. But sometimes just a few words can change your life um, and change your whole perspective on things. And I think these are the kinds of words which ought to change our view of what it means to be involved in the building of God's church. Let me read them to you. And bear in mind what Brandon read earlier from Job, because I think there's so much resonance and... Um, relevance with what he was reading there. You know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's really the essence of what these two verses are about. Let's read them together. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah was writing into a context where the people were wanting to get their act together to rebuild the temple which had been demolished. And so this is where these verses come in, and it's God questioning what's happening and why it's happening. There's a huge part of that, this that's negative, And this is why the verses were of such comfort to me, because he's slamming any notion that we can do something for God in, in one sense, reminding us of how weak we are. And you think, how can that possibly be an encouragement to you in the run-up to being involved in planting a church? And the answer is that sometimes... Knowing your limitations 
is one of the most comforting things. To feel the sense that you can't do it alone and therefore you have to rely on God. And this is the negative side of what these verses are saying. And in fact, if you think about it, isn't that the heart of the gospel also? That instead of telling you to work, 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 God says, my son has done it for you. Look to him, believe in him, and he gives you salvation as a gift. God keeps reminding us, it's all through the Bible, that we are, we're very weak and very lame people. If you're feeling like a weak person, then I think you'll sense something of the rightness of this. And if you feel the opposite, then it will challenge you. So that's one side of it. The other reason why it encourages me is because it points also to the way in which we can elicit or um, find the favor of God on us in the work that we're doing. And so he doesn't leave us hopeless and in a ditch somewhere, just saying, you're rubbish, you're rubbish, and just push your face in the mud and then just walk away. It's not like that. God is, is kind in pointing out our weaknesses. He wants to give us hope. He wants to tell us, look, you're doing it all wrong, and here's how you should do it. And so I found these verses to be immensely helpful to me and something that I kept coming back to. And so I want us to meditate on those two halves of what he's saying here, the negative and then the positive. What is he saying then? What is God saying to Israel and to us to cut down our, our pride? He says a few things. The first is this. He says, in essence, that he cannot be contained. He's speaking to a people who are, who are wanting to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. But there can be a kind of arrogance in God's people that they in some way possess God, in some way they own God. And certainly you can think about this, how this might be true for a nation like Israel before the beginning of the church. You are the only nation on the face of the planet that knows Yahweh. You think of yourself as a privileged people, and you are privileged. There's no question about it. And Jerusalem is the most special city on the face of the earth. Even when it's lying in ruins, it's still, it's still the center of everything. If there's a map, it's right there in the middle. But it can shade over into a sense that you in some way then have a monopoly on the favor of God, on the blessing of God. And it means that you can forget that while God graciously meets with Israel, he does so at his own volition. He's not in any sense owned by them. And God is wanting to puncture their national pride when he says here, heaven is my throne. Not Jerusalem, not Israel. Heaven is my throne. Here's a corrective. Listen carefully. Heaven is my throne, he says. The reason why I think this is important for us as, as Christians in the 21st century who are not building a bricks and mortar temple but rather seeking to build the church is because Stephen in the New Testament calls these verses out when he's preaching. And he's calling to the reality. It's in his long sermon in Acts 7. He's calling to the reality that worship has, has shifted that God is no longer to be worshipped in the way he's been worshipped and in the place he's been worshipped in Jerusalem in the temple. And hence he gets stoned because people think he's cursing, blaspheming the temple. And he quotes from these verses and says, worship is changing, the mission of God is changing, it's a global mission. 
But people hate him for it because he's puncturing their pride. And now you think about the context of what it means to build a church. Now, when you, when you start churches or when you join a church or when you're part of a church, you've made certain decisions, haven't you, about denominations, which kind of denomination you want to be a part of, about the style that you enjoy. Um, and sometimes you make compromises. You join a church style you don't enjoy because some aspect of it you find helpful, like the community or the teaching or something. But you make a choice, don't you? Or it can be the doctrine, the teaching. You say, this church teaches rightly the things that I think are true and the other churches don't. And so you're making an exclusive choice when you join a church or when you start a church and you build it on certain foundations. Now, I'm not criticizing the fact that these divisions exist. I think it's a sad thing, but there's almost a necessity to the fact that you have multiple denominations in the world that disagree on all kinds of things like baptism and I disagree with near neighbors on baptism like churches in the in the vicinity I disagree with them on other aspects of doctrine I'm not saying that it's wrong to have um, disagreements or to say no we think that what we believe is true but very quickly that belief can shade over into pride can't it that you're not just saying that what we think that, that we we humbly believe that what we are doing and practicing and, and preaching is true but you're saying we also have a monopoly on, on the favor of God. And so when God comes in and he says, heaven is my throne, he's saying not the temple, but he's also saying not this little church plant in Waterloo. I find that a wonderful reminder that God is about bigger things than I can possibly imagine, even in churches that are not that far away. And it's a reminder also that God in his bigness and in his sovereignty, can use people in different ways and different times at his own will. So I find constantly God is using people that I don't particularly like. That they have more gifting and more anointing than me, or than, than us, we could say, even if we find them irritating or think that they're not necessarily representing Christ well in certain ways. And even more so of churches. God uses churches that I wouldn't go to. It's one of the most annoying things as a pastor. <laughs> When you are seeking to build a ministry and, you know, I've been a pastor now for nearly eight years and you're, you're seeking to say, okay, I'm wanting to be faithful to what I think the Bible teaches. And I don't think that church is doing it right. But for some reason, they're more blessed than what I'm doing. Now, I don't think it necessarily means that what I'm doing is wrong. But at the very least, it's a reminder that I don't own God. And God can do what he wants with this church. He's not contained to this. And the reality is that other churches are going to be planted in London that will far outstrip us in fruit and blessing. I'm sure of it. I'm not wanting to curse what we're doing in any way. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll be, you know, who knows what will happen. But I, I just think that, in a sense, it doesn't matter. Let God be God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, he says. He can't be contained by what we're doing. And what we're doing is not better. It's a great reminder, isn't it? And it's not just to be applied, by the way, the things I'm saying today, at the level of church and, what, and just being involved in helping a church plant. It's also at the level of what your, your mission is from God. Because I assume that many of you feel a sense of personal mission from God to do certain things with your life. The minute you think that you are doing it better than other people, God's going to remind you, heaven is my throne. 
He then says another thing here. Not only can he not be contained, but also he can't be controlled. Think about this. One of the purposes of building a temple in the first place is to attempt to to bring the favor of God and the presence of God among the people. So the Israelites rightly understood that without God's presence, they were dead. Do you remember how they, they make the golden calf in the wilderness and Moses smashes the tablets and then God says, look, you can still go on into Canaan. And in Exodus 33, he says, God says to Moses, you can go, but I'm not going with you. And Moses pleads with God. He says, you have to go with us. Because he understood that the presence of God was everything. Without the presence of God, they were dead. They weren't the people of God. But soon, that idea that God's presence is everything can then shift over into a a belief that you can somehow control God's presence through the means that he's appointed. The Ark of the Covenant, for example. God says, I'm going to dwell there on the mercy seat. Don't touch the ark. You'll die. People die when they do touch it. But very quickly, Israel think that the ark is in some way like a magic box. And they take it into battle with them, thinking that if we've got it with us, God's going to bless us. And they lose it because they lose the battle. And the Philistines take it. It's only decades later when, when David can restore it to the people. But you can see how what was God's gracious provision to them moves into superstition. And trying to control God. Now here he says, not only does he say, heaven is my throne. He says, the earth is my footstool. This is kingly language. Do you remember in Psalm 110 when God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's talking about the rule of God. And David, when he wanted to build the temple, in 1 Chronicles 28 says to the people, I want to build it as a footstool for God. In other words, God's on his throne, but his feet are on the temple, and he's meant to rule his people by his presence through his temple. But here's the thing. If you then think that you can control God by building a temple and and in some sense trying to force him to then bless you as a people, then you flip the whole thing around and upside down. And that's why God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. You can't just build me a temple and expect that I'll just automatically come and bless you. And again, this has so much relevance to the way people seek to do church because some people think that you can just tick a number of boxes and get it right in this, that and the other way and suddenly the blessing of God's going to be with you. If you've got the right aesthetic and if you've got the right kind of people and if you've got the right venue and if you've got the right dynamic leader and if you've got the good-looking worship leader, which we thankfully have. (laughs) But if you've got all these things, some people think that you can then somehow control the blessing of God. You go to conferences where you hear from a a pastor who's grown in a, a large church, and instead of him telling you, my church grew large because God is sovereign and somehow he just decided to pour out his blessing on us, he says, my church grew large because I did this, this, and this thing. And you can do this, this, and this thing, and you will have a fruitful church. And I didn't want to say, like, I don't want to throw away wisdom. It's important that we learn from as many people as we can. But you cannot control God. 
He says, the earth is my footstool. I'm bigger than what you're doing and you can't control me. And so it, it, there's a calling for us as God's people to have such humility. He then says that he doesn't need to be served. Not only can he not be contained, he can't be controlled. And in fact, he goes further and says, I don't really need you. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He keeps reminding us of our smallness. Now, I think this is so important because it would have been easy for the Israelites, mimicking the peoples around them, to think that if God didn't have a temple, he was homeless. And therefore, we need to build him a house again because he's, he's like a vagabond at the moment. and He really needs our help. But Christians can also easily slip into that mentality where you think the gifts that you've got are yours and you need to then offer them to God. And you forget that God gave you them in the first place. And if he gave them to you, he can give them to others. And you, I, we're dispensable to God's plan. He doesn't actually need us. And I find that immensely comforting. Because if it all depended on me, I'd be very worried for the plan of God in the earth. <laughs> I don't offer myself to God as though the things I have are mine. I, I offer myself to God knowing that he gave it to me in the first place. He can't be contained, he can't be controlled, and he doesn't really need us. He wants us then to have the view that Paul articulates when he says, what have you that you didn't receive? Now, it might all sound immensely and overwhelmingly negative so far, but let me just say a few things to you. I, the reason... I find this so powerful is because I remember, it, it reminds me of that passage in Joshua. Do you remember how Joshua is just about to take Jericho? And he has an, an amazing experience where he encounters the angel of the Lord outside Jericho. And it says it, a man's standing before him with this drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua goes up to him and says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, if we were to put it in modern language, it'd be, are you with your church or are you with some other religion or, or the businesses and the government and all these kinds of things? And he says, this answer, it's, it's an either-or question, and his answer is no. So are you with them or are you with us? And he says, no. Which doesn't really answer the question at all. He says, but I am the commander of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face and he begins to worship and he takes instructions from him. It reminds me of this because, and I find comfort from that. He doesn't come to Joshua and say, hey, I'm serving you. I'm the angel of God. He says, I'm from the presence of God and I serve God. I'm not on either side. Which for us as Christians means that We're not looking to God to join our side as though this were our mission. We're wanting to get in line with his mission. 
And when we become aware of our weakness before God, whether in terms of your personal calling and the gifts God's imparted to you and the ways that you're called to work them out in the life that he's appointed for you, or whether we're talking about what we're called to do here together to build a church for God's glory in this part of London, if we thought that it depended on us, if we thought we were doing something for God, if we thought we were doing him a favor, we'd fall into one of two ditches. Either we'd do well and we'd be inflated with pride, or we'd fail and we'd be crushed. And this is what happens to people in the world all the time. Isn't that the destiny of men? That they reach the end of their lives and either they think by their own assessment they've done well and they become proud in their achievements or they feel they failed and they're crushed. But when God preempts that and tells you that you're weak, it lifts the burden off, doesn't it, right from the get-go. And the verse, as I told you at the beginning, doesn't just finish there. He doesn't just say, look, it's all bad news. He then turns around and says, listen, there's a door ajar here. There's an opportunity for you guys to repent of your pride and recognize that there is a way that I can and will bless you. And I want us to just look at what the ways that he says that he can. Three things. He says here, this is the one to whom I will look. It's language of God's favor. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, it says in number six. This is the one to whom I'll look. This is the person I have regard to. This is the people that I want to bless and find delight in blessing. And we need to ask ourselves, well, how, who, what do they look like? The kinds of people that God wants to bless. Because surely you want to be blessed by God in life. Surely you want to walk under the favor of God. And surely we want to elicit that for this church, that we be a people who are favored by God. He says three things. He says, first of all, it's the one who is humble. And the word literally means poor. God has a really big problem with pride, doesn't he, in the Bible? I don't know if you've noticed it. It says that God opposes the proud in 1 Peter. I think he's quoting from the Proverbs when he says that. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why does God hate pride? Because pride is ungrateful. It doesn't acknowledge the source where all good things come from. And pride is independent. It tries to live without a conscious leaning into the God who is our strength and supply. And God hates it because ultimately he can't bless that because it makes you the hero of the story when you're proud instead of him. And the God alone deserves the glory. This, of course, is why God hates and despises and loathes religion. This is what Jesus is laying into when he preaches against the religion of the Pharisees because it is at its heart Pride turned into piety, an attempt to, to save yourself and so build up your own ego in the process. And God can't bless it. And so he says, this is the one to whom I look. It's somebody who is poor. And he doesn't mean that you are physically poor. Though often spiritual poverty and physical poverty can be married together. This is why Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. Because when you're rich, you feel self-sufficient. But he's not meaning poor physically. He means what Jesus says in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. 
It means somebody who holds their hands out to God and recognizes that they are empty-handed. God can bless people who recognize that they are weak. What would that look like for us as a church? You might have an idea what that looks like for you personally, but what would it look like for us as a church? I think it would be characterized by certain qualities in terms of our relationship with God and certain qualities in our relationship with each other. In terms of our relationship with God, I think it would mean that, first and foremost, I think the greatest sign of of humility in a people is that they pray. I've said it before, but I think we have to keep remembering this. That when you don't pray, you are proud. You think you can do it. And when you do pray, it's an expression of humility towards God. Unless, of course, you pray in the wrong ways, like the Pharisees. There's prayerfulness, there's gratitude, and there is submission towards God. Your will be done. Whether you mean for us to be blessed and to grow, or whether you mean for us to experience suffering, we're going to say thank you, and we're going to keep coming to you in prayer. That's what it means to be a humble people. And to be humble towards one another means that we're going to be characterized by love. You remember how John in his letters, just keeps telling the people, love one another, love one another. He's an old man. He's carried in and out of the church in Ephesus, and he keeps telling them the same thing over and over again. Why? Because he heard Jesus talking about love in the, in, in the Gospels. He wrote John's Gospel. And it says, this is how men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Humility will mean that we have love to look outside of ourselves and our own insecurities and frustrations and feeling like we're on the outside of whatever cliques are inside and and look outside of all that and recognize, look, I'm here to love other people. That's humility when it's exercised in a church. It's a church that has love for the stranger and the outsider so that when new people come in, And they come from all kinds of broken backgrounds with all kinds of dark secrets. We love them and we don't judge them either. That's the kind of church that God wants to bless, I believe. The one to whom I will look is humble, he says. Secondly, he says that they are contrite. It means this. It means literally lame or crippled in spirit. People say, they love to say as a criticism that Christianity is a crutch. Have you ever heard that? I think it's the highest compliment. It is a crutch. Jesus said it. He said that I've come for the sick. The healthy, they don't need a doctor. They don't need a physician. The sick need a doctor. And he who's been forgiven much loves much. Christianity isn't just a crutch. It's, an, it's a new body. It's a new life. It's, it's everything. And God can actually only bless you when you recognize that you're crippled in spirit. It's the doorway into the Christian life. It's the way in. It's acknowledging that you are sick to the core. That you cannot save yourself. That your sin 
is overwhelming you and it will kill you in the end unless Christ saves you. Not only is it the way into the Christian life though, it's also the way on in the Christian life. Because when God has saved you and, or saved the people as he saved us as a church, he doesn't want us then to think that we're somehow beyond that awareness of our weakness of spirit, being lame or crippled, as it says here in Isaiah. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Jesus put it again in the Beatitudes. The blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's what I think Isaiah is talking about here. Finally, this is the one to whom I'll look. He who is humble, he who is contrite in spirit, who's weak, lame, crippled, and who trembles at my word. For me, this is the bottom line here of what God would want to say to us, because I think that there are basically two kinds of churches that you can build. I think there are churches that are, at their core, the temple of man, and there are churches that are the temple of God. A church that is the temple of man will have these characteristics. It will be a church that man initiates for his own glory. And it will be characterized by a kind of pick-and-choose approach to religion, or to Christianity in particular, and to the Bible. When a person picks up the Bible and chooses the bits that they like and rejects the bits that they don't like or explains them away through some kind of ingenuity and cleverness in an effort to build a church that will appeal to the city, to the world, to the context that you're in, the church that you're building is the temple of man. It's a church that's designed to bring glory to men and not to God. And we are going to have to remember this, not only now, but in increasing focus and intensity in the years to come, because even, even in just the years I've been a pastor and in the years, the short years that most of us have been alive, we've seen a total sea change in the atmosphere of the culture that we live in. Never I don't want to say that, actually. I don't think it's ever been harder. I don't think that's true at all. I think there have been times in British history when it's been a great deal more difficult. But the danger now is hard because it's so subtle. Because it looks like you, there's, a, there's an acceptable form of Christianity, which if you just dress it up this way, people love you. It comes down to a few key things. That you're not willing to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to the Father, that all religions are the same. It's when you say that homosexuality, there's no problem with committed, monogamous, homosexual relationships for life, providing that they are that, and you call it marriage. And a lot of churches, particularly churches in this area, have gone hook, line, and sinker into that ideology. It is the temple of man. It's trying to build a church for the glory of men and not for the glory of God. Because God has told you what he's like in this word. If you don't take him at his word, then the God you're worshipping is not the God of the Bible. It's some God you've invented in your mind. This is the one to whom I'll look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit 
and who trembles at my word. I know that in wanting to have an honest and rigorous and a stance that's full of integrity where you say, this is what I think the Bible says and I'm going to stand on that, that often you'll get accused of being arrogant. How dare you say that what you preach is the truth? How dare you condemn others for the way that they're living? The reality is that there is nothing more arrogant than to approach the Bible and to say which bits you think are true and which bits you think are false as though you were the judge and jury over God's word. That is the essence of arrogance before a holy God who says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If God has chosen to reveal himself in certain ways, there is no more humble stature for a Christian than to hold up his word and say, there are parts I struggle with, there are parts I don't understand, there are things that I know I will be disliked for believing, but I accept it because I tremble at your word. That is humility. That is a weakness that says, I am not sufficient to define truth. My culture isn't sufficient to define truth. God alone defines the truth. And friends, I want to say it to you now. This is the kind of church that we want to build here. And it's going to require sacrifice at times, and it's going to require hard conversations, and it's going to mean that at times we'll be vilified, and at times people will hate us. But that's okay, because Jesus will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Of course, we have to find ways of exercising immense grace. We can't do anything else when we're humble and contrite in spirit. Just because we call sin, sin, doesn't mean that we feel we're better than others. Because we all know what we've been rescued from. But I want to walk under the favor of God to be humble. I want for us to be humble and contrite in spirit and to tremble at his word. It doesn't mean you can't have questions. It doesn't mean you can't experience doubt. But it means that when we have questions and we experience doubt, it's not what I say, it's not what you say, it's what God's word says that matters. Let God's word be the measuring line. When an individual takes this stance, it may seem that we're painting here the picture of somebody who is immensely weak. But think about David. Think about the way he, the youngest, the least likely of all his brothers, the one who wasn't in the army, who hadn't been trained for battle and who didn't have any armor, goes to the battle lines and hears about Goliath and how Goliath is standing there and calling out, challenging the people of God. Come and fight me. And David's response is not an arrogant one and it's not a weak one. It's one of humility, recognizing that if God has spoken, I can take him at his word. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to oppose the armies of the living God? Courage is not something that you stir up in yourself by strength of spirit. 
Courage is not natural confidence worked out. Courage is what God is describing here. It's the humble person who recognizes that God is God and that when he's spoken, he's good to his word and that we can trust him and that we can recognize that God is going to give us every resource we need to do his work in this city in our day.